Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome to Origins, episode 46. This episode is entitled, Ten Mysteries of the Solar System. Other stories we'll be looking at include, a major discovery from MIT is primed to unleash a solar revolution. From archaeology, ancient Roman ruins have been discovered in a Jewish capital. And from the world of natural science, a boozing mammal drinks beer every night. Patients have been free from cancer after an immune boost treatment and in Scotland a smoking ban has seen a cut to the number of heart attacks. The Star Trek warp drive is a possibility, say scientists. And from natural science, an ultrasonic frog tunes its ears like a radio dial. And from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things book, some more on superstition. Black cats. From the Australia Files, we have some information about the whale shark, and of course there'll be a couple of stories from the worldwide weird. This story comes from the web.mit.edu website. A major discovery from MIT is primed to unleash a solar revolution. Scientists mimic essence of plants' energy storage system. And the story was written by Anne Trafton. In a revolutionary leap that could transform solar power, from a marginal boutique alternative into a mainstream energy source, 
MIT researchers have overcome a major barrier to large-scale solar power, storing energy for use when the sun doesn't shine. Until now, solar power has been a daytime-only energy source, because storing extrasolar energy for later use is prohibitively expensive and grossly inefficient. With today's announcement, MIT researchers have hit upon a simple, inexpensive, highly efficient process for storing solar energy. Requiring nothing but abundant non-toxic natural materials, this discovery could unlock the most potent carbon-free energy source of all, the sun. This is the nirvana of what we've been talking about for years, said MIT's Daniel Nasera the Henry Dreyfus Professor of Energy at MIT and senior author of a paper describing the work in the July 31 issue of Science. Solar power has always been a limited, far-off solution. Now we can seriously think about solar power as unlimited and soon. Inspired by the photosynthesis performed by plants, Nasera and Matthew Cannon, a postdoctoral fellow in Nasera's lab, have developed an unprecedented process that will allow the sun's energy to be used to split water into hydrogen and oxygen gases. Later, the oxygen and hydrogen may be recombined inside a fuel cell, creating carbon-free electricity to power your house or your electric car, day or night. The key component in Nasera and Cannon's new process is a new catalyst that produces oxygen gas from water. Another catalyst produces valuable hydrogen gas. The new catalyst consists of cobalt metal, phosphate and an electrode placed in water. When electricity, whether from a photovoltaic cell, a wind turbine or any other source, runs through the electrode, the cobalt and phosphate form a thin film on the electrode and oxygen gas is produced. Combined with another catalyst, such as platinum, that can produce hydrogen gas from water, the system can duplicate the water-splitting reaction that occurs during photosynthesis. The new catalyst works at room temperature, in neutral pH water, and is easy to set up, Nasera said. That's why I think this is going to work. It's so easy to implement, he said. Sunlight has the greatest potential of any power source to solve the world's energy problems, said Nasera. In one hour, enough sunlight strikes the Earth to provide the entire planet's energy needs for one year. James Barber, a leader in the study of photosynthesis who was not involved in this research, called the discovery by Nasera and Cannon a giant leap forward towards generating clean, carbon-free energy on a massive scale. This is a major discovery, with enormous implications for the future prosperity of mankind, said Barber, the Ernst Jane Professor of Biochemistry at Imperial College London. The importance of their discovery cannot be overstated, since it opens up the door for developing new technologies for energy production, thus reducing our dependence for fossil fuels and addressing the global climate change problem. Currently available electrolyzers which split water with electricity and are often used industrially are not suited for artificial photosynthesis because they are very expensive and require a highly basic or non-benign environment that has little to do with the conditions under which photosynthesis operates. 
More engineering work needs to be done to integrate the new scientific discovery into existing photovoltaic systems, but Nasera said he is confident that such systems will become a reality. This is just the beginning, said Nasera. The scientific community is really going to run with this. Nasera hopes that within 10 years, homeowners will be able to power their homes in daylight through photovoltaic cells while using excess solar energy to produce hydrogen and oxygen to power their own household fuel cell. Electricity by wire from a central source could be a thing of the past. The project is part of the MIT Energy Initiative, a program designed to help transform the global energy system to meet the needs of the future and to help build a bridge to that future by improving today's energy systems. MIT EI Director Ernest Monners noted that this discovery in the Nasera Lab demonstrates that moving up the transformation of our energy supply system to one based on renewables will depend heavily on frontier basic science. The success of the Nasera Lab shows the impact of a mixture of funding sources, governments, philanthropy and industry. This project was funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Chesonis Family Foundation, which gave MIT $10 million this spring to launch the Solar Revolution project, with the goal to make the large-scale deployment of solar energy within 10 years. And coming up shortly from the LiveScience.com website, the ancient Roman ruins discovered in the Jewish capital. Roman temple ruins from the 2nd century AD have emerged from excavations at the ancient Jewish capital of the Galilee in Israel. The discovery shows that the city of Zipporai housed a significant pagan population which built a temple in the city centre during the Roman period. The central location of the temple lies within a walled courtyard and may help archaeologists better understand the urban layout of Zipporai in the Roman era. A church from the later Byzantine period sits on top of the ancient temple, as revealed by the Noam Shadovsky Zipporai expedition headed by Zeev Weiss of the Institute of Archaeology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. The building of the church on the foundation of the temple testifies to the preservation of the sacred section of the city over time. The new finding not only sheds light on the religious life, culture and society in Roman and Byzantine Zipporai, but also indicates that Jews, pagans and later Christians live together and develop their hometown with various buildings. The newly discovered temple is located south of the Decumanus, or Colonnaded Street, that ran from east to west and was the main thoroughfare in the city during the Roman through Byzantine period. 
The temple, measuring approximately 79 by 39 feet, was built with a decorated façade facing the street. The temple's walls were plundered in ancient times and only its foundations remain. No evidence has been found that reveals the nature of the temple's rituals. But some coins dating from the time of Antoninus Pius, minted in Dio Caesarea or Zipporai, depict a temple to the Roman gods Zeus and Tyche. The temple ceased to function at an unknown date, and a large church, the remains of which were uncovered by the Hebrew University excavation team in previous seasons, was built over it in the Byzantine period. North of the Decumanus, opposite the temple, a monumental building was partially excavated this summer. Its role is still unclear, although its nature and size indicate that it was an important building. A courtyard with a well-preserved stone pavement of smooth rectangular slabs, executed in high quality, was uncovered in the centre of the building, upon which were found a pile of collapsed columns and capitals, probably as a result of an earthquake. The decoration on these architectural elements was executed in stucco. Beyond a row of columns, an adjacent aisle and additional rooms were discovered. Two of them were decorated with colourful, geometrical mosaics. And from the nationalgeographic.com news website, a boozing mammal drinks beer every night, according to a study. And this article is written by Brian Handwork. A taste for naturally fermented palm beer has turned a tiny Malaysian mammal into a chronic boozer, a new study shows. The pentailed tree shrew is the first non-human mammal known to display alcoholic behaviour. What's more, the rat-sized animal never gets drunk during its non-stop jungle jamborees. Because the species is considered similar to the ancient ancestors of all primates, its 55-million-year bender suggests that our own taste for alcohol might predate the known advent of brewing some 9,000 years ago. The circumstances in which these tree shrews consume alcohol could be similar to past scenarios of human evolution in pre-primate or early primate stages and could somehow be a link to human alcohol consumption, said study lead author Frank Wines, a biologist at the University of Bayreuth, Germany. Sorry about the little snicker there. Wines and colleagues' findings were published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The flowers of the Bertram palm produce nectar which naturally ferments, with the aid of several yeast species, to a 3.8% alcohol strength, similar to that of many beers. 
Because the plant flowers nearly year-round, its rainforest bar is always open, and the pen-tailed tree shrew, along with several other local mammal species, are regulars. The animals spend an average of two hours per night sipping the nectar, which appears to be their primary food source. To test the animal's alcohol consumption, Wines and colleagues tested the animal's hair samples for ethylglucuronide and found that the tree shrews consume alcohol at rates that would be dangerous to most mammals. The tree shrews appear to have more efficient ways of metabolising alcohol than humans, so they avoid getting drunk. Inebriation would be dangerous for small potentially tasty mammals, Wines said. This is a stable ecological relationship for millions of years, and it doesn't make sense to have inebriation in this system. Inebriation would increase the risk for these small animals to be killed by a predator. But Wines notes that just because the animals are not drunk doesn't mean that their boozing has no consequences. If they avoid inebriation, I still suspect that alcohol has some very specific effects on their brain and behaviour, he said. Wines also suggests that the 55 million year old binge probably confers some advantages to both the tree shrew and plant. Alcohol production appears critical to the palm's reproduction because it entices tree shrews to pollinate their flowers. If alcohol is crucial for an ecological relationship, like the pollinator relationship, then it should also exert some sort of beneficial effect to the animals, and we can only speculate on those effects, Wines said. Robert Dudley, a physiologist at the University of California, Berkeley, also suggests several hypotheses. We know that alcoholism is very detrimental, Dudley said, but there are some positive features of low-level alcohol consumption, like protection against cardiovascular disease, he said. Another possibility is that the apatif effect that has been well described in humans. It may stimulate feeding and increase overall caloric intake. The tree shrew's drinking habits could cast human alcohol use in an entirely new light. Despite their name, tree shrews are thought to be similar to the ancient ancestors of all primates, including humans, which existed some 55 million years ago. It's often assumed that humans did not drink alcohol or had only a bit of low-dose naturally fermented brew before the believed advent of brewing about 9,000 years ago. But it's possible that our ancestors were chronic drinkers, like the tree shrew, very early in primate evolution, experts say. There may be some evolutionary background to human drinking that goes much farther back than the invention of brewing, Wines said. Dudley of UC Berkeley agreed. If we look at human ancestors and recent relatives like chimps and gibbons, they are all eating fruit and nectar much of the time, Dudley said. So we may have inherited an ancestral association of ethanol intake with caloric gain that would predispose us to drink alcohol. Well, there you go, everyone. There's a new excuse for drinking too much and getting slightly inebriated. Next time your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse or whoever says, why did you drink so much? Just say, it's in my genes. It goes back to my ancient ancestors.
The following article comes from the telegraph.co.uk website and it's written by Roger Highfield who is the science editor. Patients free from cancer after immune boost treatment. Cancer patients have been left free of the disease after being treated with a new drug which harnesses the power of their own immune cells. Four of 38 patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma have seen complete regressions following treatment, while five others saw reductions of 50% in their tumours. The drug which could prove cheaper than other therapies that try to achieve the same effect with cells works by activating the body's own defences to attack the cancer. The results have been described as an exciting and significant development in the use of immunotherapy, the process of using the body's own immune system to fight disease. While the trials were only carried out on patients with the blood cancer, it is hoped the methods can be adapted to tackle other cancers. The disease claims the lives of more than 150,000 people in the UK every year, and more than one million people are suffering from cancer at any one time. Earlier this year, doctors announced that a patient with advanced skin cancer was free of the disease two years after they injected him with billions of his own immune cells using a different method. However, experts warned at the time that the process could prove extremely expensive. The development of the drug could prove a much cheaper alternative way of providing immunotherapy treatments. Professor Peter Johnson, Cancer Research UK's Chief Clinician, said, These exciting preliminary results come from using them to harness the body's own immune response in a new way. Although the side effects need to be monitored carefully, we hope that this type of treatment will prove to be active in larger trials in the future. This is a significant study, said Dr Cassian Yee, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre Seattle, who has had significant results using the alternative method of treating patients with white blood cells grown in the lab. It remains to be seen if most of the responses are long-lasting. Certainly the results are very promising. The drug which has been developed by Micromet from Maryland was trialled by a team led by Dr Ralph Bargo at the University of Würzburg in Würzburg, Germany. The results published in the journal Science are encouraging because they suggest that the bigger the dose, the bigger the effect. Co-author of the study, Dr Patrick Bayery of Micromet, said all seven who received the highest dose responded to the drug. Two of the seven had a complete response and five a partial regression, which is greater than 50% reduction of tumour. The longest duration of a response was so far seen in a patient who received one quarter of their dose. After 13 months, he remains free of the blood cancer. There are adverse side effects involved, however, such as fevers and chills, occasionally with confusion and tremor, though all stopped after treatment ceased. Now a further trial is investigating how the drug works in patients with another form of blood cancer called acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. Trials with a similar drug are also underway on patients with another type of cancer which affects glandular tissue and can appear in the lungs, prostate, breast, colon and elsewhere in the body. Micromet targets the body's own white blood cells on the cancer using a fraction of a millionth of a gram of a specialised protein called a bispecific antibody. 
The company has created antibodies called BITE, B-I-T-E, antibodies, which are able to stick to sites with exquisite precision. In this case, to activate specialised white blood cells, or T-cells, to attack cancer. The antibodies overcome a key problem with immunotherapy, that as tumours become more advanced, they become more invisible to the T-cells, because the cancer cells lack molecules for white blood cells to hang on to and stage their attack. Normal antibodies are designed to latch onto one molecular target, but the bispecific antibody developed by Micromet binds to two, the cancer cell and the T-cell, and bring the two together to target the immune system on the cancer. The team tried varying doses in patients and found that among 38 patients, at doses from 5 ten thousandths of a milligram to 6 hundredths of a milligram per square metre of body surface per day, 11 of them exhibited major responses and tumour shrinking. The disease was cleared from bone marrow, spleen, and liver too. And keeping in with the world of medicine, an article from Reuters.com, and this is written by Jean Emery. A Scottish smoking ban has seemed to cut heart attacks. Scotland's 2006 ban on smoking in public places cut the heart attack rate by 17% within one year, with non-smokers benefiting most, researchers reported on Wednesday. The study is the first real-time, large-scale look at how a ban on second-hand smoke might benefit smokers and non-smokers. Earlier research looked at the effect of smoking bans in individual cities, or had other limitations. A total of 67% of the decrease involved non-smokers, Dr Jill Pell of the University of Glasgow and colleagues wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine. The number of people admitted to nine Scottish hospitals from a heart attack dropped from 14% among smokers, 19% among former smokers and 21% for those who had never smoked. In contrast, the rate declined only by 4% in England during that period, before a ban went into effect there. Historically, heart attack rates in Scotland had been dropping 3% per year. There are a number of countries considering whether to impose similar bans, and obviously the more evidence of the effectiveness of such intervention, the more likely they are to do that, Pell said in a telephone interview. Among the 5,919 cases she and her colleagues studied, women seemed to benefit the most. The heart attack rate among smokers dropped 19%, compared to an 11% decline among men. It dropped 23% among female non-smokers versus 18% among non-smoking males. There had been concern at the start of the ban that it would increase the amount of smoking in private homes. Using measurements of a chemical that gauges exposure to cigarette smoke, the researchers found that the fear was unfounded and exposure to secondhand smoke declined by 42%. 
So it seems that the ban is not only protecting non-smokers, it is changing society's idea of what is normal, said Pell. When New York imposed tough restrictions on public smoking, exposure levels declined by 47%. The United States does not have national smoking restrictions. Limits are placed by individual states or municipalities. And from the www.universetoday.com, our feature story for this episode, Ten Mysteries of the Solar System, and it's written by Ian O'Neill. We've all wondered at some point or another what mysteries our solar system holds. After all, the eight planets, plus Pluto and all those other dwarf planets, orbit within a very small volume of the heliosphere, the volume of space dominated by the influence of the sun. What's going on in the rest of the volume we call home? As we push more robots into space, improve our observational capabilities, and begin to experience space for ourselves, we learn more and more about the nature of where we come from and how the planets have evolved. But even with our advancing knowledge, we would be naive to think we have all the answers, so much still needs to be uncovered. So, from a personal point of view, what would I consider to be the greatest mysteries within our solar system? Well, I'm going to tell you my top ten favourites of some more perplexing conundrums our solar system has thrown at us. So, to get the ball rolling, I'll start in the middle with the sun. Number 10. The solar pole temperature mismatch. Why is the sun's south pole cooler than the north pole? For 17 years the solar probe Ulysses has given an unprecedented view of the sun. After being launched on the space shuttle Discovery way back in 1990, the intrepid explorer took an unorthodox trip through the solar system. Using Jupiter for a gravitational slingshot, Ulysses was flung out of the elliptic plane so it could pass over the Sun in a polar orbit. Spacecraft and planets normally orbit about the Sun's equator. This is where the probe journeyed for nearly two decades, taking unprecedented in situ observations of the solar wind and revealing the true nature of what happens at the poles of our star. Alas, Ulysses is dying of old age, and the mission effectively ended on July the 1st, although some communication with the craft remains. However, observing uncharted regions of the Sun can create baffling results. One such mystery is that the South Pole of the Sun is cooler than the North Pole by 80,000 degrees Kelvin. Scientists are confused by this discrepancy, as the effect appears to be independent of the magnetic polarity of the Sun, which flips magnetic north to magnetic south every 11 years. 
Ulysses was able to gauge the solar temperature by sampling the ions in the solar wind at a distance of 300 million kilometres above the North and South Poles. By measuring the ratio of oxygen ions, the plasma conditions at the base of the coronal hole could be measured. This remains an open question, and the only explanation solar physicists can currently come up with is the possibility that the solar structure in the polar regions differ in some way. It's a shame Ulysses bit the dust. We could do with a polar orbiter to take some more results. Number 9. Mars Mysteries Why are the Martian hemispheres so radically different? This is one mystery that has frustrated scientists for years. The northern hemisphere of Mars is predominantly featureless lowlands, whereas the southern hemisphere is stuffed with mountain ranges, creating vast highlands. Very early on in the study of Mars, the theory that the planet had been hit by something very large, thus creating the vast lowlands, or a huge impact basin, was thrown out. This was primarily because the lowlands didn't feature the geography of an impact crater. For a start there is no crater rim, plus the impact zone is not circular. All this pointed to some other explanation, but eagle-eyed researchers at Caltech have recently revisited the impact of theory and calculated that a huge rock between 1,600 to 2,700 kilometres in diameter can create the lowlands of the northern hemisphere. Bonus mystery. Does the Mars curse exist? According to many shows, websites and books, there is something almost paranormal out in space, eating or tampering with our robotic Mars explorers. If you look at the statistics, you would be forgiven for being a little shocked. Nearly two-thirds of all Mars missions have failed. Russian Mars-bound rockets have blown up, US satellites have died mid-flight, British landers have pockmarked the red planet's landscape, no Mars mission is immune to the Mars Triangle. So, is there a galactic ghoul out there messing with our bots? Although this might be attractive to some of us superstitious folk, the vast majority of spacecraft lost due to the Mars curse is mainly due to heavy losses during the pioneering missions to Mars. The recent loss rate is comparable to the losses sustained when exploring other planets in the solar system. Although luck may have a small part to play, this mystery is more of a superstition than anything measurable. Number 8. The Tunguska Event What caused the Tunguska impact? Forget Fox Mulder tripping through the Russian forests. This isn't an X-Files episode. In 1908, the solar system threw something at us, but we don't know what. This has been an enduring mystery ever since eyewitnesses described a bright flash that could be seen hundreds of miles away over the Podkamenya Tunguska River in Russia. On investigation, a huge area had been decimated. Some 80 million trees had been felled like matchsticks, and over 2,000 square kilometres had been flattened. But there was no crater. What had fallen from the sky? The mystery is still an open case. 
Although researchers are pinning their bets on some form of airburst when a comet or meteorite entered the atmosphere, exploding above the ground. A recent cosmic forensic study retraced the steps of a possible asteroid fragment in hope of finding its origin and perhaps even finding the parent asteroid. They have their suspects, but the intriguing thing is, there is next to no meteorite evidence around the impact site. So far, there doesn't appear to be much explanation for that. But I don't think Mulder and Scully need to be involved. Number 7. Uranus's Tilt Why does Uranus rotate on its side? Strange planet is Uranus. Whilst all the other planets in the solar system more or less have their axis of rotation pointing up from the ecliptic plane, Uranus is lying on its side, with an axial tilt of 98 degrees. This means that for very long periods, 42 years at a time, either its north pole or south pole points directly at the sun. The majority of the planets have a prograde rotation. All the planets rotate counterclockwise when viewed from above the solar system, that is, above the north pole of the Earth. However, Venus does the exact opposite. It has a retrograde rotation, leading to the theory that it was kicked off axis early in its evolution due to a large impact. So, did this happen to Uranus too? Was it hit by a massive body? Some scientists believe that Uranus was the victim of a cosmic hit and run, but others believe there may be a more elegant way of describing the gas giant's strange configuration. Early in the evolution of the solar system, astrophysicists have run simulations that show the orbital configuration of Jupiter and Saturn may have crossed a 1 is to 2 orbital resonance. During this period of planetary upset, the combined gravitational influence of Jupiter and Saturn transferred orbital momentum to the smaller gas giant Uranus, knocking it off axis. More research needs to be carried out to see if it was more likely that an Earth-sized rock impacted Uranus or whether Jupiter and Saturn are to blame. Number 6. Titan's Atmosphere Why does Titan have an atmosphere? Titan, one of Saturn's moons, is the only moon in the solar system with a significant atmosphere. It is the second biggest moon in the solar system, second only to Jupiter's moon Ganymede, and about 80% more massive than Earth's moon. Although small when compared with terrestrial standards, it is more Earth-like than we give it credit for. Mars and Venus are often cited as Earth siblings, but their atmospheres are 100 times thinner and 100 times thicker, respectively. Titan's atmosphere, on the other hand, is only one and a half times thicker than Earth's, plus it is mainly composed of nitrogen. Nitrogen dominates Earth's atmosphere at about 80% composition, and it dominates Titan's atmosphere at about 95% composition. But where did all this nitrogen come from? Like on Earth, it's a mystery. Titan is such an interesting moon and is fast becoming the prime target to search for life. Not only does it have a thick atmosphere, its surface is crammed full with hydrocarbons, thought to be teeming with tholins or prebiotic chemicals. 
Added to this, the electrical activity in the Titan atmosphere, and we have an incredible moon with a massive potential for life to evolve. But as to where its atmosphere came from, we just do not know. Number 5. Solar Coronal Heating Why is the solar atmosphere hotter than the solar surface? Now this is a question that has foxed solar physicists for over half a century. Early spectroscopic observations of the solar corona revealed something perplexing. The Sun's atmosphere is hotter than the photosphere. In fact, it is so hot that it is comparable to the temperatures found in the core of the Sun. But how can this happen? If you switch on a light bulb, the air surrounding the glass bulb won't be hotter than the glass itself. As you get closer to a heat source, it gets warmer, not cooler. But this is exactly what the Sun is doing. The solar photosphere has a temperature of around 6000 degrees Kelvin, whereas the plasma, only a few hundred thousand kilometres above the photosphere, is over one million degrees Kelvin. As you can tell, all kinds of physics laws appear to be violated. However, solar physicists are gradually closing in what may be causing this mysterious coronal heating. As observational techniques improve and theoretical models become more sophisticated, the solar atmosphere can be studied more in depth than ever before. It is now believed that the coronal heating mechanism may be a combination of magnetic effects in the solar atmosphere. There are two prime candidates for corona heating, nanoflares and wave heating. I for one have always been a huge advocate of wave heating theories. But there is strong evidence that nanoflares influence coronal heating too, possibly working in tandem with wave heating. Although we are pretty certain that wave heating and or nanoflares may be responsible, until we can insert a probe deep into the solar corona, which is currently being planned with the solar probe mission, taking in situ measurements of the coronal environment, we won't know for sure what heats the corona. Number 4. Comet Dust How did dust formed at intense temperatures appear in frozen comets? Comets are the icy dusty nomads of the solar system, thought to have evolved in the outermost reaches of space in the Kuiper Belt, around the orbit of Pluto, or in a mysterious region called the Oort Cloud. These bodies occasionally get knocked and fall under the weak gravitational pull of the Sun. As they fall towards the inner solar system, the Sun's heat will cause the ice to vaporise, creating a cometary tail known as a coma. Many of the comets fall straight into the Sun, but others are more lucky, completing a short period if they originated in the Kuiper Belt, or long period if they originated in the Oort Cloud orbit of the Sun. But something odd has been found in the dust collected by NASA's 2004 Stardust mission to Comet Wild 2. Dust grains from this frozen body appear to have formed at high temperatures. Comet Wild 2 is believed to have originated from and evolved in the Kuiper Belt. So how could these tiny samples be formed in an environment with a temperature of over 1000 degrees Kelvin? 
The solar system evolved from a nebula some 4.6 billion years ago and formed a large accretion disk as it cooled. The samples collected from WILD 2 could have only been formed in the central region of the accretion disk, near the young Sun, and something transported them into the far reaches of the solar system, eventually ending up in the Kuiper Belt. But what mechanism could do this? We are not too sure. Number 3. The Kuiper Cliff Why does the Kuiper Belt suddenly end? The Kuiper Belt is a huge region of the solar system, forming a ring around the Sun just beyond the orbit of Neptune. It is much like the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. The Kuiper Belt contains millions of small rocky and metallic bodies, but it's 200 times more massive. It also contains a large quantity of water, methane and ammonia ices, the constituents of cometary nuclei originating from there. The Kuiper Belt is also known for its dwarf planet occupant Pluto and, more recently, fellow Plutoid, Makemake. The Kuiper Belt is already a pretty unexplored region of the solar system as it is. We wait impatiently for NASA's New Horizons Pluto mission to arrive there in 2015 but it already has thrown up something of a puzzle. The population of Kuiper Belt objects, or KBOs, suddenly drops off at a distance of 50 AUs from the Sun. This is rather odd, as theoretical models predict an increase in the number of KBOs beyond this point. The drop-off is so dramatic that this feature has been dubbed the Kuiper Cliff. We currently have no explanation for the Kuiper Cliff but there are some theories. One idea is that there are indeed a lot of KBOs beyond 50 astronomical units, it's just that they haven't been accreted to form larger objects for some reason, and therefore cannot be observed. Another more controversial idea is that KBOs beyond the Kuiper Cliff have been swept away by a planetary body, possibly the size of Earth or Mars. Many astronomers argue against this, citing a lack of observational evidence of something that big orbiting outside the Kuiper Belt. This planetary theory, however, has been very useful for the doomsayers out there, providing flimsy evidence for the existence of Nibiru, or Planet X. If there is a planet out there, it is certainly not incoming mail, and it certainly is not arriving on our doorstep in 2012. So, in short, we have no clue as to why the Kuiper Cliff exists. Number 2. The Pioneer Anomaly Why are the Pioneer probes drifting off course? Now this is a perplexing issue for astrophysicists, and probably the most difficult question to answer in solar system observations. Pioneer 10 and 11 were launched back in 1972 and 1973 to explore the outer reaches of the solar system. Along their way, NASA scientists noticed that both probes were experiencing something rather strange. They were experiencing an unexpected sunward acceleration, pushing them off course. Although this deviation wasn't huge by astronomical standards, 386,000 kilometres off course after 10 billion kilometres of travel, it was a deviation all the same, and astrophysicists are at a loss to explain what is going on. 
One main theory suspects that non-uniform infrared radiation around the probe's bodywork from the radioactive isotope of plutonium in its radioisotope thermoelectric generators may be emitting photons preferentially on one side, giving a small push toward the Sun. Other theories are a little more exotic. Perhaps Einstein's general relativity needs to be modified for long treks into deep space, or perhaps dark matter has a part to play, having a slowing effect on the Pioneer spacecraft. So far, only 30% of the deviation can be pinned on the non-uniform heat distribution theory, and scientists are at a loss to find an obvious answer. And finally, number one, the Oort cloud. How do we know that the Oort cloud even exists? As far as solar system mysteries go, the pioneer anomaly is a tough act to follow. But the Oort cloud, in my view, is the biggest mystery of all. Why? We have never seen it. It is a hypothetical region of space. At least with the Kuiper belt, we can observe the large KBOs and we know where it is. But the Oort cloud is too far away if it is really out there. Firstly, the Oort cloud is predicted to be over 50,000 astronomical units from the Sun. That's nearly a light year away making it about 25% of the way to our nearest stellar neighbour, Proxima Centauri. The Oort cloud is therefore a very long way away. The outer reaches of the Oort cloud is pretty much the edge of the solar system, and at this distance, the billions of Oort cloud objects are very loosely gravitationally bound to the Sun. They can therefore be dramatically influenced by the passage of other nearby stars. It is thought that Oort cloud disruption can lead to icy bodies falling inward periodically, creating long-period comets, such as Halley's Comet. In fact, this is the only reason why astronomers believe the Oort cloud exists. It is the source of long-period icy comets, which have highly eccentric orbits emanating from regions out of the ecliptic plane. This also suggests that the cloud surrounds the solar system and is not confined to a belt around the ecliptic. So the Oort cloud appears to be out there, but we cannot directly observe it. In my books, that is the biggest mystery in the outermost region of our solar system. And the following story comes from the telegraph.co.uk website and it's by Roger Highfield, their science editor. Star Trek warp drive is a possibility, say scientists. Two physicists have boldly gone where no reputable scientists should go and devised a new scheme to travel faster than the speed of light. The advance could mean that Star Trek fantasies of interstellar civilizations and voyages powered by warp drive 
are no longer the exclusive domain of science fiction writers. In the long-running television series created by Gene Roddenberry, the warp drive was invented by Zephram Cochran, who began his epic project in 2053 in Bozeman, Montana. Now, Dr. Gerald Cleaver, Associate Professor of Physics at Baylor, and Richard Abusi have come up with a new twist on an existing idea to produce a warp drive that they believe can travel faster than the speed of light without breaking the laws of physics. In their scheme, in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society, a starship could warp space so that it shrinks ahead of the vessel and expands behind it. By pushing the departure point many light years backwards, while simultaneously bringing distant stars and other destinations closer, the warp drive effectively transports the starship from place to place at faster than light speeds. All this extraordinary feat requires, says the new study, is for scientists to harness a mysterious and poorly understood cosmic anti-gravity force called dark energy. Dark energy is thought responsible for speeding up the expansion rate of our universe as time moves on, just like it did after the Big Bang, when the universe expanded much faster than the speed of light for a very brief time. This may come as a surprise, since according to relativity theory, matter cannot move through space faster than the speed of light, which is almost 300 million metres per second. But that theory applies only to unwarped, flat space. And there is no limit on the speed which space itself can move. The spaceship can sit at rest in a small bubble of space that flows at superluminal or faster-than-light velocities through normal space because the fabric of space and time itself is stretching. In the scheme outlined by Dr. Cleaver, dark energy would be used to create the bubble. If dark energy can be made negative in front of the ship, then the patch of space would contract in response. Think of it like a surfer riding a wave, said Dr. Cleaver. The ship would be pushed by the spatial bubble, and the bubble would be travelling faster than the speed of light. The new warp drive work also draws on string theory, which suggests the universe is made up of multiple dimensions. We are used to four dimensions, height, width, length and time, but string theorists believe that there are a total of ten dimensions, and it is by changing the size of this tenth spatial dimension in front of the spaceship that the Baylor researchers believe could alter the strength of the dark energy in such a manner to propel the ship faster than the speed of light. They conclude by recommending that it would be prudent to research this area further. But hold the dilithium crystals. Dr Chris van den Broek of Cardiff University commented, The problem with this and previous schemes is that part of the exotic matter would have to travel faster than the local speed of light. Roughly speaking, it would need to go faster than the speed of light with respect to the portion of space it occupies. And that's not allowed by any established physical theory. Even if this criticism can be met, Richard Abusey computed the amount of energy required to start up a warp process, but not the total energy required to travel a specific distance, around a 10 times 10 times 10 metre cube ship based on the required change in dark energy in a space equal to the volume of the ship. 
the energy to kickstart the drive turned out to be the equivalent to turning the entire mass of Jupiter into energy. By Einstein's famous E equals mc squared equation, where c is the speed of light. And given what we know about the mass of Jupiter, that is a big number. That is an enormous amount of energy, Dr. Cleaver said. We are still a very long ways off before we could create something to harness that type of energy. And from the Australia Facts, this article comes from the www.fish.wa.gov.au website. And it's entitled, Conservation of Fish Species, Whale Sharks. Western Australia is privileged to be one of the few places in the world known to be visited by the mysterious whale shark on a regular basis. Each year, just days after the mass spawning of corals on the Ningaloo Reef near Exmouth in March and April, whale sharks appear in the waters along the front of the reef, remaining for up to a month. It is thought that they come to feed on an explosion of marine life that feeds on the coral's spawn. Most of these visiting whale sharks are immature males. It remains an intriguing puzzle why this particular section of the population visits our coast. Whale sharks will grow to over 12 metres in length, which is about the size of a large bus. These gentle ocean giants are often confused with whales because of their large size and feeding habits. They are, however, sharks, albeit the least fearsome of this group, and their closest relatives are the nurse and wobbegong sharks. Whale sharks are not aggressive, and like the second largest of all sharks, the slightly smaller basking shark, cruise the oceans feeding on concentrations of zooplankton, small fish and squid. The whale shark's mouth contains 300 rows of tiny teeth, but ironically they can neither chew nor bite their food. Instead the sharks use a fine mesh of rakers attached to their gills to strain food from the water. These rakers are functionally similar to the baleen plates possessed by many whales. Biologists have speculated that whale sharks feed by literally vacuuming food from the water. However, researchers at Ningaloo have observed that the sharks usually feed by actively swimming through a mass of zooplankton or small fish with their mouths wide open. Whale sharks have also been observed to hang vertically in the water and feed by sucking water into their mouths. Very little is known about the reproduction of whale sharks, most information coming from a single egg found in the Gulf of Mexico. It is thought that the young develop in egg cases that are retained in the mother's body until hatching. Despite their large adult size, whale sharks are very small at birth, probably 40 to 50 centimetres. Whale sharks occur worldwide in tropical and temperate seas and are thought to be highly migratory. However, there is little information currently available on this aspect of their behaviour. Researchers have fitted a number of whale sharks at Ningaloo with smart tags that record the animal's location and depth over a long period of time. 
If and when these tags are recovered, they will provide an insight into the migratory habits of the species. And from the nationalgeographic.com news website, a story by Kertan. Ultrasonic frog tunes its ears like a radio dial. A Chinese frog that uses ultrasonic communication can tune its ears like a radio dial to block out lower-pitched background noise, a new study finds. This makes the concave-eared torrent frog the only known animal that can physically control which frequencies it hears by opening and closing parts of its ears. This was contrary to everything that we knew about the frog's auditory system, said study co-author Albert Feng of the University of Illinois. Feng's team speculates that the tiny frog, which lives near rushing streams and noisy waterfalls in central China, uses the adaptation to block out background noise when it wants to hear the calls of mates or rivals. The concave-eared torrent frog is the only amphibian known to make ultrasonic calls or communications and frequencies far above the range of human hearing. Just a few other animals including bats and dolphins are thought to have this ability. Earlier this year, Feng and colleagues reported that male torrent frogs can localise sound with unusual accuracy to find females during ultrasonic mating duets. Further study of the amphibian's hearing showed that its eardrums vibrate in response to ultrasonic noises, but only some of the time. This surprised the team, because in all other frogs, eardrums always respond the same way to a sound stimulus. Further examination revealed that the Chinese frogs were actively opening and closing their eustachian tubes, two narrow channels that connect the mouth cavity to the left and right ear. Closing the tubes improved the frog's ability to hear high frequencies and ultrasounds, while opening them increased sensitivity to low-frequency noises. The mechanism is truly unique in the animal kingdom, commented James Saunders, an auditory expert at the University of Pennsylvania. Saunders pointed out that humans can also selectively hear different sounds. For instance, people can single out the sound of a bassoon over other instruments during an orchestral recital. But selective auditory attendance in humans is mostly a trick of the mind. It involves neurons in the brain homing in on sounds coming from certain directions. By contrast, the Chinese frogs have evolved the biological equivalent of earmuffs to block out all sounds of a certain frequency range. Study co-author Feng speculates that the frogs' tunable ears are an adaptation to their noisy home environments. For example, shifting to high-frequency hearing could help the frogs pick out mating calls during a storm when the low-pitched noises of plunking raindrops, booming thunder and rushing water dominate. If you or I were in this situation, we would be trapped, Feng said. 
The background noise is coming from everywhere, so our kind of selective hearing wouldn't do us any good. The frogs just say, I'm not hearing this, I'm going to switch to another channel. And the following story is written by Graham Tibbetts of the telegraph.co.uk website and it's one of those stories that you think, why would people want to do this anyway? Women to give birth at 100 within three decades. Women aged 100 will be able to give birth within three decades as infertility is eradicated, scientists have predicted. They would foresee a world where every female of any age from childhood upwards could successfully conceive. Employing techniques still to be developed, scientists believe that they could create sperm and eggs from skin cells and combine them to form embryos. Parents would then be able to choose a so-called designer baby, selecting based on characteristics such as hair colour and height to intelligence and disease-free genes. The forecasts reported in Nature were made by leading scientists who were asked to anticipate advances in reproduction by 2038 to mark the 30th birthday of Louise Brown, the world's first test tube baby. Deva Salter of the Institute of Biology in Singapore said, It means every person, regardless of age, will be able to have children. Newborn children could have children, and 100-year-olds could have children. It could easily happen in the next 30 years. Other steps forward that are envisaged are gestation taking place in an artificial womb, low-cost IVF treatment being made available at £50 a cycle, and, more controversially, the creation of embryos for experiments. Mr Salter added, I have no idea what kind of moral value or rights we'd give to those embryos. It could be terrible to start and then become a fact of life. Maybe 30 years from now we'll read someone made 20,000 embryos and studied their development and we'll decide it's okay. And from the book, Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, I'm going to continue with the superstitions. Black Cat, Middle Ages, England. As superstitions go, fear of a black cat crossing one's path is of relatively recent origin. It is also entirely antithetical to the revered place held by the cat when it was first domesticated in Egypt around 3000 BC. All cats, including black ones, were held in high esteem among the ancient Egyptians and protected by law from injury and death. So strong was cat idolatry that a pet's death was mourned by the entire family, and both rich and poor embalmed the potties of their cats in exquisite fashion, 
wrapping them in fine linen and placing them in mummy cases made of precious materials such as bronze and even wood, a scarcity in Timbapur, Egypt. Entire cat cemeteries have been unearthed by archaeologists, with mummified black cats commonplace. Impressed by the way a cat could survive numerous high falls unscathed, the Egyptians originated the belief that the cat has nine lives. The cat's popularity spread quickly throughout civilization. Sanskrit writings more than 2,000 years ago speak of cats' roles in Indian society, and in China, about 5,000 BC, Confucius kept a favourite pet cat. About AD 600, the Prophet Muhammad preached with a cat in his arms, and at approximately the same time, the Japanese began to keep cats in their pagodas to protect sacred manuscripts. In those centuries, a cat crossing a person's path was a sign of good luck. Dread of cats, especially black cats, first arose in Europe in the Middle Ages, particularly in England. The cat's characteristic independence, willfulness and stealth, coupled with its sudden overpopulation in major cities, contributed to its fall from grace. Alley cats were often fed by poor, lonely old ladies, and when witch hysteria struck Europe, and many of these homeless women were accused of practicing black magic, their cat companions, especially black ones, were deemed guilty of witchery by association. One popular tale from British feline law illustrates the thinking of the day. In Lincolnshire in the 1560s, a father and his son were frightened one moonless night when a small creature darted across their path into a crawl space. Hurling stones into the opening, they saw an injured black cat scurry out and limp into the adjacent home of a woman suspected by the town of being a witch. Next day, the father and son encountered the woman on the street. Her face was bruised, her arm bandaged, and now she walked with a limp. From that day on in Lincolnshire, all black cats were suspected of being witches in night disguise. The law persisted. The notion of witches transforming themselves into black cats in order to prowl streets unobserved became a central belief in America during the Salem witch hunts. Thus, an animal, once looked on with approbation, became a creature dreaded and despised. Many societies in the late Middle Ages attempted to drive cats into extinction. As the witch scare mounted to paranoia, many innocent women and their harmless pets were burned at the stake. A baby born with eyes too bright, a face too canny, a personality too precocious was sacrificed for fear that it was host to a spirit that would in time become a witch by day, a black cat by night. In France, thousands of cats were burnt monthly until Louis XIII in the 1630s halted the shameful practice. Given the number of centuries in which black cats were slaughtered throughout Europe, it is surprising that the gene for the colour black was not deleted from the species. Unless the cat does possess nine lives. Thank you.
Hello. 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 Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. And to conclude today's episode, a few stories from the world wide weird. Friday, August 22. A scientist has discovered a previously unknown insect on eBay. The UK's Dr Richard Harrington reportedly paid about $40 for the fossilised insect encased in amber. He thought it would make an interesting curio, but it turned out to be a long extinct and previously unknown species of aphid. Thursday, August 21. A New York pet store owner is appealing to a shoplifter who stole his two-headed turtle to bring back the missing reptile. Sean Casey told the New York Post that the turtle has special needs, such as having to be hand-fed in order to prevent fights between the heads over food. Wednesday, August 20. A kindergarten disco in Auckland, New Zealand has been shut after a neighbour complained that it was playing Bob the Builder too loud. It was only 6.30pm, a teacher said, after a council noise control officer showed up with an official notice, ordering the dance closed down. Tuesday, August 19. Although a police station is the last place a burglar would be expected to ply his trade, more than $2 million worth of gear, from humble handcuffs to entire police vehicles, has been pilfered from police stations in England since 2005, it was reported yesterday. Monday, August 18. A British great-granny has become the oldest person on Facebook. Ivy Bean, 102 of West Yorkshire, decided it was time to get herself some online action when she heard about the site through staff at her nursing home. She is using it to stay in touch with friends and family. And finally, Friday, August 15, 2008. Bungling engineers have been left red-faced after building a railway tunnel that's too small for trains. Tracks were laid down on newly raised ground, which meant the distance between the tracks and roof of the tunnel became shorter, a Polish railway spokesman said. Well, what a strange story. Maybe they should have employed this guy. Well, that brings a close to episode 46 of Origins. Much of the music for today comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com. And remember shortly I'm going to announce the date of our live show on TalkShoe, which will be called Paul Rex Live. If you like this podcast, don't forget I do two others, one called Mysteries Abound and the other's called Bizarre Bizarre, and both can be found at iTunes and Podcast Alley and other good podcasting sites. So until episode 47, it's bye for now.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.